If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Acts in chapter 6. Acts in chapter 6. I see that my uh, announcement that I'm preaching on church polity has brought the masses this morning. Um, <laughs> I know, fall break, bummer. Um, this is a uh, second part of a series we started last week called Church 101. Uh, we're looking at church governance, order, basics of church, what's called polity, okay? And so last week we talked about Jesus' rule over the church, um, and today we're going to talk about um, elders and deacons, so the two offices of the church. Um, we're going to be in several places, but first we're going to be in Acts 6, verses 1 through 7. And also behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there as well. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's read this. Acts in chapter 6. Starting in verse 1, the Holy Spirit says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and in the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurius, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Amen. This is God's word. May God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. This line in the final chapter of George Orwell's book, Animal Farm, captured the summary critique that the whole book was driving towards. How many of you, by the way, have read Animal Farm? Okay, nice. Um, the book was intended to be a fictionalized allegory to criticize the communist ideals that were peddled by Karl Marx and the Soviet Russian government. Orwell was attempting to show with this critique that the utopian ideal of equality in wages and lifestyles that was being peddled eventually turn to, as they always do, a division between the haves and the have-nots. That there was equality, yes, he said, but some in society were more equal than others. The story may be familiar to you. Or Orwell pictures a farm owned by the Joneses, wherein their animals organize, they rise up, they revolt, and they displace the Joneses as the rulers of the farm for the benefit of the animals. The animals set a government, if you will, that was for the animals, by the animals. What happens, though, is the pigs slowly become a ruling class over the other animals and turn on their agreed-upon saying. They, 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 all the animals, when they rose up, had these agreed-upon sayings, and one of them was, all animals are equals, and the pigs, when they rose up, turned that phrase into, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. Orwell seemed to be showing through his critique of the communist economy that abuse of authority is rooted in the nature of humans. As if authoritarianism was an inevitable result of most, if not all, structures. 
When Orwell wrote Animal Farm, it was in some sense revolutionary. Today, however, such critiques of authority seem par for the course. In our day, to say that authority is bad and inevitably leads to or is equal to authoritarianism is not revolutionary at all. But part and parcel for our thinking on the topic, almost as if we can't think of the word authority without also thinking of authoritarianism and abuse. For most of us who grew up in Western culture, we know one thing about authority. It's bad. Some of us grew up in the counterculture movement of the 50s and 60s, right, that cast authority uh, as a repressive force and idolized revolution. Some of us grew up watching the government bungle authority through wars or waste or become accustomed to one political scandal after the next. Some of us grew up listening to music that caused us to sing along with the painted lead-up singer that we're not going to take it. No, we ain't going to take it anymore. Some of us grew up on punk and hip-hop music that told us to rage against the machine and that all powers existed solely to keep us down. Some of us grew up watching television shows that portrayed the parents as bumbling fools who didn't really get it, but thankfully the kids were there to clean up the messes. In any case, as Carl Truman said, if anything marks the contemporary world, it's a surely suspicion of external authority. He says authority lies within you, or at least that is the message the sales and marketing people wish to send. External authority is merely a repressive force that prevents you from being whoever you wish to be. But as Christians, we know that authority is real right? <laughs> that it's given by God, that it can be good. We recognize that there is authority inherent in society, in the home, but also in the church. Regardless of what we think of authority, we cannot deny that authority will be exercised. Yes, it will. If there's a vacuum, what's going to happen? It will be filled. You know this. So in the church, what should that look like? We know, yes, from last week that Jesus is the ruler the head, husband, founder, and sustainer of the church. This is something we must always keep in view. Jesus is the point and the ruler and the owner of the church. We forget this to our own detriment. But how does Jesus rule, how does his rule get expressed practically? In other words, how do we follow Jesus' instructions on the ground level? Has Jesus given us instructions on how the church is to be governed on the ground? Are there authorities under Jesus in the church that helped to lead the church to good and right decisions. Sam Amati wrote a little book called Who's in Charge of the Church? And he says this, when we ask who's in charge of the church, we first have to ask, in charge of what? You see, Jesus has authorized different offices in the church to do different things. So like we talked about last week, we know that Jesus is the rule of the church. We know that he is a God who speaks, that he has given us his word so that we do not have to guess on even things like church government or poly or order. Even on something that may seem so trivial and mundane, the Holy Spirit has spoken through Jesus' apostles in what we call the New Testament. The authors of How to Build a Healthy Church helpfully say this, it's popular in some contemporary circles to hold that church leadership structures really just boil down to semantics. Whether you call them deacon or elders is largely immaterial. As long as you have some spiritually mature people leading the church, and conducting its affairs. In Baptist circles, and particularly in the Southern Baptist churches over the past 20, 120 years, the prevalent leadership model seems to be a single pastor or elder supported by multiple deacons and often held accountable by a board of trustees. Granted, he says, the Bible leaves ample wiggle room 
on the issue of church structure. But although the evidence is scant, it's nevertheless consistent. New Testament churches are to be congregationally governed, yet led by a plurality of elders who are released by servant deacons to devote themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. This is essentially what we're exploring in this series that we continue today. When we said last week, what we said last week is that polity or governance that we find in Scripture is to be Jesus-ruled, elder-led, deacon-served, and congregational accountable. So today I want us to talk about the offices that the Bible gives us of elder and deacon, and then next week we'll explore the congregation accountable aspect. Now as Baptists, we've historically believed, affirmed, that there are two offices in the New Testament, elder or pastor, and deacon. And you go look through Baptist confessions since the 1600s, and they consistently affirm that there are two offices given in the church. You can also look through many 19th and 20th century Baptist writers who affirm that this is a biblical model, including the very first president of the Southern Baptist Convention who pushed for Baptist churches to return to plural, plural elder, deacon-served, congregational form of government, which is, he said, appears clearly on the pages of Scripture. And we see these two offices of elder and deacon put together by Paul in a couple places. Philippians 1.1 says, To all the saints, in his greeting, he says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the elders and deacons. We also see them together in 1 Timothy 3 as the only offices with accompanying qualifications. But again, you might think, you might be thinking right now, I am neither an elder nor a deacon. What does this have to do with me? Everything. Because it is your role as a member and a congregation to make sure we follow Scripture faithfully. And thus, have these two offices to ensure they are functioning. You must know what they are, are supposed to do so that you can give oversight to their functioning and their roles given by Scripture. The ultimate responsibility for the faithful functioning of the local church is in the hands of the members of that particular congregation. And we'll talk more about that next week. But for now, let's consider these two offices. I want us to start with deacons. Now, I wonder, what comes to mind when you hear the word deacon? Just think about it for a second. Most Baptist churches for over a century have had deacons function in similar ways. As a sort of board who meets and makes decision and adjudicates when some controversy arises. Is that kind of what you think of when you think of deacons? Usually they have been made up of respected guys in the church who have been there for a while, who everyone knows, who perhaps have good at business or know their way around Home Depot or are good at finances and who members believe would be good representatives of them when they get into the room to make those decisions. Maybe you think of deacons as a board, a deliberative body who have long meetings and discuss what the church should do or what direction it should go and can make sure the pastor did what he was supposed to do uh, according to their understanding of the pastorate. Maybe you think of them as sort of a board of directors and the pastor is a CEO. Do any of those fit your understanding, by the way? And what you've seen, but does do any of those fit into what the Bible says? Russell Moore, writing on Deacon, said, There's an entire generation of conservative evangelical churches where one would be more likely to find an unfrozen caveman in the congregation than a biblically functioning deacon. So what does the Bible say about deacons? What are they to do? We consider first Acts 6. This is where the office of deacon was created. In Acts 6, we see the early church run into one of its first potential controversies. And I say potential controversy because the creation of the office of deacon is the solution. 
to the threat of splintering the early church. So what's going on here? We see from verse 1 that the early church is growing. This caused an unexpected problem. It caused some of the widows to go overlooked in the distribution of food. So we see the early church taking care of one another's needs, but because of the speed of the growth, you see, some are not being taken care of, which happens to be the Greek-speaking widows. So the 12 apostles see this, and they get together, and they say, in essence, the widows must be taken care of, but we can't give up preaching the word in order to serve tables. So they wanted to hold up the importance of the preached word, but the widows need to be taken care of too. So they, what will they do? They tell the church, select seven men from among you. And what are they to be like? You see it, right? They're to be of good repute. They're supposed to be full of the Holy Spirit. And they're supposed to be wise. And they will be the ones who will serve the widows so that the apostles can focus primarily on prayer and the preaching of the word. And we see here, an instance where the congregation had the responsibility to elect and select, yes? They're the ones who elect and select the men who meet the qualifications as given by the apostles. So even though the apostles came up with this solution, the onus was still on the gathered church to find and appoint capable men according to the criteria given by Jesus' chosen representatives. And so they elect these seven men who wait tables, they take care of the widows. What's the result according to verse 7? The word of God continued to increase. You see that? And the disciples multiplied greatly. That having the correct polity with right men contributed directly to the success of the mission, didn't it? So we see that the office of deacon is crucial for the health of a church where the role is being pursued in the way that we see here. And what do we see here? I think we can conclude at least three things regarding the role of deacon from this text, okay? First... The deacons are to care for physical needs and well-being of the members. In other words, they spot and meet tangible needs, okay? Spot and meet tangible needs. Matt Smethurst says it like this. The largest principle of the deacon's role includes anything in a church's life that threatens to distract and derail elders from their primary responsibilities. But the best deacons don't just react to present problems, they anticipate future ones. We see here in Acts 6 that the problem had arisen and was spotted, and the choice lay before the apostles. Do we give up the word so that we can meet tangible needs of people, or do we ignore the tangible needs of people in order to devote ourselves to the word? Neither option was good, because the church has a responsibility to care for its members, yes, but to not neglect the word, to, to neglect the word would be to gut what was to be central to the church for its members' growth and obedience. The people needed the bread of the word as much as they needed physical bread for their stomachs. So the apostles said, we'll be devoted to the word and prayer. The deacons will spot and meet tangible needs of the members. So the deacons freed up the apostles through their service to the church. The 1611 shorter catechism says that deacons attend to the affairs of the poor and the sick brethren. Similarly, 17th century Baptist leader Benjamin Keith Keach said that the work of deacons is to serve tables to see to provide for the Lord's table, the minister's table, and the poor's table. Historian Charles DeWeiss says, the early deacons visited martyrs who were in prison, clothed and buried the dead, looked after the excommunicated with the hope of restoring them, provided the needs of widows and orphans, visited the sick and those who were in distress. In plagues that struck Alexandria about 259 AD, deacons were described by an eyewitness as those who visited the sick fearlessly, ministered to them continually, and died with them most joyfully. 
Deacons fulfilling the important task of seeing after the tangible needs of the members of the church freed up the apostles in Acts 6 and elders throughout church history. We, now, we don't have apostles today, do we? But the apostles handed the task of the ministry of word to the elders in the New Testament. This isn't to say elders are endowed with apostolic authority, okay? They are not. But it is to say that the office we see in the New Testament, whose primary task is to teach and minister to the church from the word, is the elders. So biblically functioning deacons assist elders by spotting and meeting needs in the members so the elders can more fully devote themselves to word and prayer. Think of the imperfect analogy of an offensive line for a football team. If you have a good offensive line, then the offense can run properly, yes? And the quarterback can focus on throwing the ball. <laughs> Rather than both throwing the ball and fearing for his life as he is forced out of the pocket because some giant linebacker got through, right? If you have a bad offensive line, you'll know it because the quarterback won't be as effective because he'll be distracted from his primary task of throwing. So it is with the church. The more elders are carried off their task, the less benefit the church will get from the word because it will, be, it will need to be neglected as they're pulled all of these other directions. Says Smethurst again, show me a church with distracted pastors and a derailed mission and I will show you a church without effective deacons. But second, they're also to protect and promote unity in the church. Protect, not only meet tangible needs, but protect and promote unity in the church. Why were they even created in Acts 6? Because the church was threatening to splinter. Deacons were created in order to keep the church united. The physical neglect of the Hellenist widows was causing a spiritual disunity in the body, and so deacons were created in order to prevent disharmony, especially from it going further, and it worked, didn't it? Says Mark Dever, church uniting and edifying is especially the role of deacons. We can't have people serve us well as deacons who are unhappy with the church. They're the last people who could serve well as deacons. The deacons are not those in the church who are complaining the loudest, are jarring the church with their actions or attitudes. Quite the opposite. The deacons in the New Testament are to be mufflers, shock absorbers. The deacons are the very ones who are to be uniters, not dividers. So deacons should not be given to turfiness. They shouldn't be advocating for their own pet causes like lobbyists or representatives, but should be serving on behalf of the whole church for the good of the whole church. They should be encouragers who give the benefit of the doubt, who are easy to please and hard to offend. They should forge unity, spot when there are things that threaten the unity of the church, and wisely handle those on the lowest level possible so disharmony doesn't spread like gangrene infecting the whole. Deacons then aren't people whose favorite phrases people have been saying, but are people who work diligently to help members walk together in unity and trust and selflessness. A deacon should be where gossip and conflict go to die. They should absorb shockwaves so that they do not reverberate further and cause untold damage and unhealthiness. Now, a third thing deacons do is they support the ministry of the elders, they support the ministry of the elders. As we've seen, the apostles know that if they primarily serve tables, they would have to neglect the ministry of the word in some respects. This isn't to say that the apostles didn't serve tables. It's to say that it wasn't the primary task of the apostles, and the deacons helped in freeing the apostles up. This is what deacons are supposed to do for elders. They're supposed to assist elders by executing the vision of the elders. 
One way we could put it is that elders, this might be something worth writing down, elders serve by leading and deacons lead by serving. Elders serve by leading and deacons lead by serving. Or to put it another way, the elders lead the ministry, the deacons facilitate the ministry, and the congregation does the ministry. All the parts are necessary, but they each have different focuses. So we must not think as maybe we have in the past, that elders and deacons or the pastor and deacons are separate power blocks. As if the deacons are the house of representatives and the elders are the senate. They don't compete against one another. They complement one another. The deacons are not, as some suppose, a deliverer body in which the elders must pass bills through in order to get anything done like Congress. The deacons assist the elders so that the tangible needs of the members are met, which frees up the elders to focus more on the ministry of the word and leading the church to make wise decisions based on the word. This makes them uniters, not dividers, because if they aren't acting as uniters, then the elders will have to focus more on repairing splintering church rather than serving joyfully in church harmony. John Hammett says it well, the deacons are there to assist the pastors and relieve them of any duties that would prevent them from doing those things that most require their energy, time, and attention. I think uh, I heard somebody offer this helpful illustration. They said, if, if the elders say, let's drive to Pittsburgh, it's not up to the deacons to come back and say, no, let's drive to Philadelphia instead. They can legitimately come back and say, our engine won't get us to Pittsburgh. Perhaps we should reconsider. That's very helpful. But in general, their job is to support the destination set by the elders. The office of deacon rightly carried out is an indispensable gift to the church. I dare say that it would be incredibly difficult to be a biblically healthy church without biblically functioning deacons. And those who pursue the office of deacon according to the pattern we see in Acts 6 with joy and encouragement are worthy of honor. Turn with me to the next text, another one, 1 Timothy and chapter 3. Go to 1 Timothy and chapter 3. <clears throat> Here I mentioned earlier is another place where we see the offices of elder and deacon are separate offices. They're mentioned together. First overseers are deacons, and then uh, first overseers are pastors, and then deacons. These are the qualifications that we see in the New Testament. I want you to jump down to verse 13, okay? Paul gives these uh, qualifications for elder and deacon, and then at the end of his qualifications for deacons, what does he say? In verse 13, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. Deacons who faithfully execute their task gain a good standing for themselves and great confidence in their faith in Christ. Deacons who serve faithfully have a great reward for their faithful execution of the ministry, which might very well go unseen or unnoticed, but is essential to unity and health. See, we live in a culture that we can't help but to look down on the humble and the unseen services. Many would rather be in the spotlight than behind the scenes. Many would rather be in a room making decisions than waiting tables. And so a view of deacons that returns to our Baptist roots and to the very first deacons sound mundane and low. And it is. But it's also crucially important. It's also service that does not go unseen by our Father who is in heaven, who says one's reward for such service will be great. It's also the way of Christ, who emptied himself and lived a life of service for the good of others. Russell Moore, 
put it nicely when he said, servanthood is not menial. Our Lord Jesus himself is the servant of all and is thus emperor of the universe. Deacons organize servant ministry, whether by serving at the Lord's table or setting up a shut-in ministry or by supervising a children's neighborhood immunization clinic in order to equip the saints to serve and to ensure that the service being done results in the unity of faith and the advance of the gospel. That kind of servant leadership is more significant than any corporate board, congregational or otherwise. A deacon is to be just a servant to be sure and wise and holy, but just a servant, there's no such thing. And so what about elders? What is different about the office of deacon and elder? Let's, let's read these qualifications from verses 1 through 13, okay? And it'll be behind me on the screen as well. 1 Timothy 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, elder, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace into the snare of the devil. Verse 8, this is the deacon qualifications. Deacons likewise should be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first, and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. Now, maybe you're asking, what is an elder anyway? Some of you may be confused by this language because you haven't really seen or heard it much in Baptist life. So maybe you're unfamiliar with it. An elder is a pastor. That's all. In the New Testament, the word elder is used interchangeably with the words pastor, overseer, and bishop. They're all talking about the same office of elder. Elder and pastor are synonymous in the New Testament. I use the word elder, however, because it's the most common title for the office of the New Testament. It appears some 17 times. Well, if you scan both of these lists... In 1 Timothy 3, they're very similar, are they not? They're very similar. Uh, and mostly have to do with character rather than skill. But there are a few exceptions that differentiate the offices that clue us in on what we said a bit ago. That elders serve by leading and deacons lead by serving. You notice elders must be able to teach, whereas deacons are not required to be able to teach. That doesn't mean that they cannot. It just means that they don't have to in order to be a deacon. Elders must teach and preach. They minister the word. They feed the flock. They equip the saints for the work of ministry, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, and they're responsible for the direction of the church's education. This doesn't mean, again, that non-elders can't teach, but it does mean that those who do, do so under the elders' oversight because the elders are charged to protect the flock from false teaching and from those who would harm the flock through destructive doctrine like we see in Acts 20. You notice another difference in the offices in verses 4 and 12. Both verses say that deacons and elders must manage their households well. Yes? But notice that for elders, there's an added caveat in verse 5. 
if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And then right after that added qualification for elder, it says he cannot be a recent convert. And why? So that he will not become conceited. If elders didn't have the task of oversight, that exhortation would be pretty unnecessary, wouldn't it? So elders have authority, oversight, and management over the church, but this authority is not absolute, you understand. Ben Merkel says in a book, if you were to, if you were to want to look into this concept of elders and deacons more, this is a book you'd want to get. It's by Benjamin Merkel. It's called 40 Questions About Elders and Deacons. In that book, he says, elders derive their authority from the word of God, and when they stray from that word, they abandon their God-given authority. I want you to consider, you could uh, turn here if you want, it'll be behind me on, on the screen, uh, you could follow along there, and I'm going to read it out loud, in 1 Peter and chapter 5, 1 Peter and chapter 5, and verses 1 through 4. This is another significant text on this topic. Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will likewise receive the unfading crown of glory. You see language here that he uses that denotes derived authority from Christ and the word. So things like shepherd the flock, exercise oversight, and over your charge. But don't you see warnings too, right? Not domineering, not doing it for shameful gain, not under compulsion, knowing that Christ is your example and the one that you will have to answer to for how you led. So elders must be warned that if they don't lead according to the word or for shameful gain or domineering, that they have Christ to answer to. He's the model and he's the chief shepherd that every under shepherd must ultimately give an account to. Now you've probably noticed that I've used elder all throughout this sermon in the plural, have you noticed that? Elders. Why is that? It's because, as Greg Allison puts it, without exception, every time the New Testament mentions the government of a particular church, the leadership structure is a plurality of elders. The New Testament never indicates that a single congregation was ruled by one elder or one pastor. You can see elders in the plural in Acts 14 and 15 and 16 and 20 in Philippians 1, in Titus 1, in, right here in 1 Peter 5, and in James 5, all in the plural. Wayne Grudem says this, no passage suggests that any church, no matter how small, had only one elder. The consistent New Testament pattern is a plurality of elders in every church and in every town. Second, he says, we don't see a diversity of forms of government in the New Testament church, but a unified, consistent pattern in which every church had elders governing and keeping watch over them. So this means that a church, where possible, should have a plurality of elders, multiple elders, men who are qualified according to Scripture and who are a body comprised of both staff and non-staff elders. That means that everyone on staff, i.e. their main source of income, comes from the church, who has the title pastor, is an elder, but they also should be joined by non-staff or lay elders whose main source of income does not come 
from the church. Does that make sense? So the benefit of having a plurality of elders are legion. I'm going to list some for you, okay? Why have a plurality of elders? Why have multiple elders, both staff and lay? For one, elders can provide accountability for one another. This thus doesn't leave the senior or lead pastor without accountability, but provides it from guys who hold the same office. This is why it's silly. I know when you broach this topic, silly people are not familiar with the plurality of elders and say, well, this sounds like a power grab. If someone in a solo senior lead pastor model wanted power, the last thing they should do is advocate for a plurality of elders. That's the last thing because it means, plurality of elders means he has less, not more power because it's asking for accountability and oversight and aid in making decisions and leading the church to do the same. But second, a second benefit is that the other elders can make up for for one another's faults. In other words, it provides a balance of gifts because no one pastor has all the gifts necessary to provide properly for shepherding of the flock. Let's illustrate it like this. How many of you have remember getting a Swiss army knife? You guys remember getting a Swiss army knife when you were a kid? I remember one Christmas, I thought it was the coolest thing ever. And I accidentally stabbed myself in the leg and there's blood everywhere. And I remember how shiny it was. And, and I did what every kid, what you did when you got your Swiss Army knife, right? Frequently explore all the tools, right? In and out, in and out, now. I said, shoot, now that I have this, I could probably survive in the woods. If I had to, just drop me in the middle of the woods. I'll be fine, right? This is all I need. Short knife, short knife, long knives, tweezers, a screwdriver, scissors, a toothpick. And who could do without, right, the corkscrew in case you came across a wild bottle of Baptist-approved non-alcoholic wine in the wilderness, right? But the Swiss Army knife had multiple handy tools in one. It, it wasn't just one thing. It was many things in case you needed them. A similar thing happens when you have a plurality of godly, qualified men to serve as elders. Says Jeremy Ryan, each brother brings unique gifts to the team that beg to be discovered and used. It's like opening a human Swiss Army knife, one elder gift at a time. Of course, all elders should share some gifts that are basic to the role, such as leading and teaching, yet even those gifts can vary in strength and shape. Each elder will make up for one another's deficiencies because one bring, each one brings something different to the table and they complement one another. They will better serve and lead the church. Do you see? A third benefit is that it allows other men to share the burden of ministry. This will keep one man less exposed to unjust Criticism. If the elders together make decisions based on the word and lead the congregation to thus make wise and biblical decisions, they will do it together and thus the burden of ministry is shared. A fourth reason a plurality of elders makes the leadership of the church more rooted and permanent. It makes it more rooted and permanent, which allows for more continuity. If you have a plurality of elders, both staff and lay, and something happens to the lead or senior pastor, there will be less chaos, less angst, less worrying and hand-wringing because the rest of the elders are still there to lead and to teach in the same way that they always have. There's a reason why the New Testament continually refers to elders in the plural. God knew what he was doing when he established the church, and he knew that the task of pastoring is best when pursued in plurality. Some may say, well, this sounds inefficient, Aren't there better, more efficient, more corporate ways we could form our church government? To which I say, 
Who cares about efficient? The question is, what is God's design for the church? What is God's design for the church and polity? His ways will forever be better than ours, yes? And like we said last week, if the church is God's house, then ours is not to decide where the furniture goes. It's to put it where God said it should be. Phil Newton, Matt Schmucker, in their book called Elders in the Life of the Church, says this. The danger facing many modern congregations is to read into the the scriptures our 21st century ideas about church government. We've added plenty of bells and whistles, directors of mass media, pastors of recreation, Sunday school committee, board of directors, not to mention all the seminars and books that tell churches how to do it. The drive to increase growth and expand ministry has complicated the structure of churches. The consequences have been twofold. First, churches have shifted the privileges and burdens of ministry to the professional staff while bypassing gifted leaders whom God has placed into their membership. Second, churches have let the call to nurture, equip, and disciple believers to be salt and light in the world get lost in the shuffle of big events and choreographed performances. Both churches and a spiritually needy world suffer as a result. That is why understanding the biblical basis for elders is crucial for establishing vibrant, Christ-centered churches. So if we're to ask the question, who's in charge of the church? Of course, the first answer is what? Jesus. We established that last week, okay? If you didn't listen to that, go listen to that. He is ruler, he is head, he is husband, he is point, he is purpose of the church. Any authority in the church is under the authority of Christ. In other words, it is a derived authority and only valid as it follows the word of God and submits to it. But under Christ, we see that the church, the members, the gathered congregation is in charge of the church. And we see the elders are in charge of the church. Both are true and necessary for healthy church polity. How does that work? How does it work that both the congregation and elders both have authority simultaneously? There's, for one, mutual submission. The elders submit to the church, and the church submits to the leadership of the elders. The congregation uses its authority to elect elders whom they follow as long as the elders are leading according to the Bible. The elders thus lead the congregation to make wise and biblical decisions. Another way to put it is that the elders don't usurp the congregation's authority. They equip the congregation to exercise its authority rightly. Sam Amati has a helpful illustration on this. He compares the relationship between the authority of elders and the authority of the congregation, like the relationship between your steering wheel and your emergency brake in your car. How often do you use your emergency brake while you're driving? Not very often, right? The elders have their hands on the steering wheel, they're navigating the car and its passengers through winding, sometimes turbulent streets of this world. The congregation, meanwhile, sits in the passenger seat, trusting the elders to get them to the right destination. But if the congregation decides that the elders have made a seriously wrong turn or that they're about to run the church off a cliff, the congregation can pull the emergency brake. Pulling that brake is a fairly radical action, right? Just think again of how often you pull yours while you drive. But by pulling the emergency brake, the congregation is essentially saying, we need to rethink this because we aren't headed in the right direction. Do you see? 
So in this series, we still have yet to go into the congregational accountable piece that will come next week, but we can already see how God's design for the church polity takes shape. Christ is forever and always the ruling head of the church. No one usurps his authority. He has no rival. Nothing and no one else sustains and guides the church. She is Jesus' possession now and evermore. But Jesus delegates authority through his word so that the church can live together in community in a beautiful structure that can be, when, when pursued, helps the church maintain unity and health, which will cause it, like Acts 6, to grow both spiritually and numerically because it will be something so different than anything the world knows. Some ask, what kind of government should the church be? And then they look at the world. This is where we've gotten in trouble. We look at the world and see what can be borrowed and emulated. Is it a democracy like the U.S. government? Is it a business with a CEO and a board of directors? It's none of those things. It's something totally, wholly unique. Don't you see? Jonathan Lehman puts it like this. Is biblical congregationalism a democracy? No, it's a mixed government. Part monarchy, rule of the one. Part oligarchy, rule of the few. Part democracy, rule of the many. Jesus is king through his word. The elders or pastors lead. And the congregation has final human say on certain crucial matters. And it is precisely the dynamic between the one, the few, and the many that cultivates a culture of discipleship and that guides immature members towards maturity. So to be sure, polity is not the most important thing. It's not the most important thing. Polity is not the gospel. Having the right polity isn't necessary for salvation. But just because it's not the most important thing doesn't mean it isn't important at all. Right polity is a matter, don't you see, of obedience. It's a matter of obedience, faithfulness, and discipleship. Wrong polity, and you know this because you've experienced it, can cause division and confusion. Right polity can bring unity and faithfulness because it clarifies for everyone what their roles are. It could cause us to know where we fit in the church and how we're to relate to one another. It causes us to focus not on weird controversies and get bogged down in the mission. It could squelch competing power blocks and unhealthy competitiveness in the church. It could kill an us versus them mentality that is always suspicious and always vying for one's rights and causes us to look not after uh, other people's desires, but our own. So now, no, no, polity is not the most important thing, but it is a matter of faithfulness and discipleship. We serve a kind ruler who died for sinners, who was executed to purchase the church, and who promised her flourishing forever. And in that space, he calls us out of darkness into the kingdom of Christ, and we have a holy, you, friend, have a holy responsibility to obey the edicts of the king. And if we do obey his directives and those of his chosen apostles in the New Testament, we could be a healthy church who focuses on the mission he gave us and the result will be what we see in Acts 6-7. The word of God will continue to increase for the glory of Christ.